We're at the third Sunday after Epiphany, so we're firmly into this brief period of Sundays in ordinary time on the calendar. Remember, we finished uh, Advent Christmas Epiphany, and now we're in a little, part, a little mini green season, and then we're going to get into heavy sledding with Lent coming in a while on Ash Wednesday, uh, fairly early this year, I think February the 17th. So uh, that's coming up. So the green seasons are about discipleship. It's cost, the ways and the means, uh, and uh, the nature of Christian discipleship. And during this time of year, after Epiphany, the added theme to the green season is how to make manifest to the world the promises of God. So the Christian people think about their discipleship in terms of manifestation. Epiphany means manifestation, and so we think about that. And there are two themes that I want to preach about today, one from 1 Corinthians where we have Paul speak of a theme that he uh, speaks of more than once in his writings in the New Testament, and that is the church as the body of Christ. And what does it mean? In Christianity, you know, we use the body of Christ in more than one way. The body of Christ is also the Eucharistic species, you know, the bread and the wine. But we understand uh, this to mean somehow the community uh, as the body of Christ and what that might mean. So I want to say some things about where Paul got the idea and how we might understand that. And then the great thematic text of Luke's gospel we hear today. Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah and saying after he reads the one of the great, now you need to file this word on ice, Isianic texts. <laughs> from Isaiah or Isaiah depending where you're from. And you can hear here uh, Isaiah's, the great prophet of God, uh, indicating what God's liberating presence brings to the world and what our responsibility as Christian people may be in that regard. So I want to speak about that. And also, once again, to say some things about the gospel according to St. Luke and what he's uh, uh, getting at in his gospel because Luke spends more time than any other gospel writer on at least two things. One is healing, and he talks about that here, and also issues of uh, social equity and economic justice. Those things loom large to him, and he believes that they're important and central to the message and ministry of Jesus. Last week I mentioned to you that uh, Paul was writing to 1 Corinthians, uh, to the Corinthian congregation. I talk all the time about how the Corinthian congregation was on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement in the New Testament, and how we understand that because of this um, conflict and this plurality, uh, it produced some pastoral difficulties that Paul had to deal with uh, when he wasn't there. Remember when you read Paul's epistles, it's like reading one end of a telephone conversation, so you don't know what he got told, but he's responding in some way to uh, these challenges. 
And we're going to see that in one sense he celebrates what I've just said, that is to say the plural nature of the Corinthian community, the diversity of the uh, Corinthian community. But he also wants to bring some clarity with regard to understanding the vocation of the people in the, in the church in Corinth and for them to get some understanding of this thing called the body of Christ. The body of Christ, as the community of faith we call the church, is not referred to in that way anywhere else in the New Testament except in the Pauline writings. And many things that Paul conveys to the reader in his epistles actually come from a tradition that he has received and is handing on. The earliest Eucharistic words of Jesus in the New Testament are from Paul's writings, not from the Gospels in 1 Corinthians. Paul's writings are the earliest of the writings in the Gospels. So this Gospel dates from about 54, 55 A.D. And he's not today transmitting a tradition that he has received. He is giving you a theological statement about how he understands the church. And here's where he got it from, which seems kind of unusual. There were a group of Christians in the church in Corinth and other places too that we now call Gnostic Christians. And the Gnostic Christians believe that they possess this gnosis, this knowledge, special knowledge, and that their particular take on Christianity in terms of understanding and practice was to be preferred, and they believed themselves in some way to be uh, an elite group who really knew. And Paul had great difficulties with the Gnostics, as did many other Christian groups. You know, it's very uh, popular today to think about all of the various aspects of Christianity. Fortunately, we don't use the word heresy as much as we used to. Some lament that, not me, <laughs> but some do. And it is uh, uh, possible to, to speak in those terms. But a lot of these versions of Christianity that, that didn't become uh, what we now call orthodox didn't uh, not become that way because there was some organized conspiracy of powers in place to see that that was not so. But given the way in the academic world that we, we're in now and in other places, it's very fashionable to say, you know, we have all these balkanized groups and people who have been deprived or victimized and treated badly. The reason the Gnostic Christians didn't get traction is that people didn't believe it. They didn't believe that version of it. And the reason there isn't so much of it that literature is they stopped copying it. You don't have to take my word for this. You can read Robert M. Grant's little book on this kind of publishing that went on from the University of Chicago. He, what, he's not exactly a lightweight in this territory. But uh, that's the main reason. It isn't because somebody had it in for them in a way or, or was able to. Maybe after the Constantinian settlement, when you had the full force and effect of the Roman Empire behind you, you were able to enforce a certain species of Christianity with some force and effect. But prior to this, in the New Testament period, certainly that was not the case. Paul has borrowed the concept of the body of Christ, though, from these Gnostic Christians. And he has done it because he wishes to clarify what they mean. 
the Gnostics believed that because of our baptism and because of our belief in Jesus, we now have become one with him. That is to say the same. And Paul is saying, no, we are one with him, but we are not the same. He is the Savior. And he is making a commercial message for the importance of the ability of thinking people to make distinctions. Now, permit me to digress for a moment about something you think may not have anything to do with this. But here's the deal. All of our life as human beings, people, uh, and internally in our physical body, we need, in order to be healthy and to survive, learn to learn what is self and what is not self. If we were not physically able to do this internally, chemically, cellularly, every one of us, and also in our relationships to one another, would become ultimately one big glob of protoplasm. Funk! <laughs> stuck together. And so part of the nature of things is that we need to learn what is self and what is not self. All right? The processes of disease, the process of the immune response of the body, all of those things have to do with what is self and what is not self. What I can identify as self and what is not self. And if it isn't self, how now do I have the proper distance from it? Either to protect myself to survive or to be able to function at a high level because I'm strengthening self. All right? In a theological, spiritual, and mental sense, Paul is at pains here to speak about the body of Christ as something that is a principle of unity amongst discrete, D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, -E, persons, individuals in a community. And so he wishes to refer to the body of Christ in this way because he also sees that the great diversity present in this community must and needs to be honored for authentic Christianity to survive. So his speaking about the body of Christ is that you and I always hold in tension the relationship between ourselves and our connectedness one to the other and our personal commitment both corporately and personally to honoring the differences and seeing their necessity. I mean the cells of the eye are not the same as the cells of the hand. And they're all connected, and they're all necessary. And Paul is at pains to speak about it this way, rather than in the Gnostic sense, that it's all kind of one big spiritual protoplasm that's all coming together in this sort of amoeba-like fashion. Okay? Christian theology involves understanding what is distinctive about each of us that God knows by name and loves unconditionally and forgives unconditionally. And so that's the starting place that we have with regard to how we understand the Christian community. So for Paul, to use very fancy uh, terminology, 
for Paul, the body of Christ is both a simile, you know, which is different, how, how different things are similar. We are like the body of Christ, but he also believes, to use biblical scholarship word, an ontological reality, which means it's a separate entity. It is, the body of Christ exists in space and time as the community of faith. And he's at pains to say that. But the whole point of this is unity in diversity. Here's a great paragraph I got from a commentary this week on this passage. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the early church was the ongoing respect for diversity and the equal welcome given to those who gathered. Rich landowners shared communion with their slaves. Peasants and their rulers broke bread together. It was like nothing people had ever seen. In Christ, rich and poor, ruler and outcast were made one. I'm sorry to say to you that a lot of Christian history has been for some groups or from time to time, some Christian people believing we need to retreat from that idea and to create a kind of monochromatic, lockstep, uh, dogmatic approach to the way we operate in Christianity. And I've said to you before that I share uh, Dean Alan Jones, the retired dean of Grace Cathedral's view about this. Belonging being part of the body is more important than believing. Believing comes, but belonging is the first principle. And one of the problems that we're having in the Episcopal Church, and indeed many of the mainline churches today with people, is that they believe the starting point needs to be right belief. That once you get all your ducks in a row and have the boxes checked, now you go and belong, right? Or you're in, or you're accepted, or it's okay. And what we see from the New Testament witness and from Paul's understanding of the body of Christ, the first piece of this is belonging, being part of the body, and recognizing that we can't live without each other, that we need each other. That's why it's such a tragedy in our church that there are some people who feel they must leave in fact, that may be the greatest sin of all, schism. But more on that another time. In Luke's gospel, we must remember that Luke has some things. He has, uh, maybe it would be too strong to say, an agenda. But <clears throat> Luke uh, is, is very interested in healing. And I suspect the reason for that is that uh, he is a physician. So there are more healing stories in Luke's gospel than in any other. There are more stories in Luke's gospel about issues of social and economic justice and equity. And today we have this sort of predicate for all of this in this uh, gospel where, where Jesus is in his hometown synagogue. Luke, the gospel, is volume one of a two-volume set Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts. The same person wrote both of those things. And Luke today will say this about Jesus uh, filled with the Holy Spirit comes into the Galilee. 
What they don't tell you is this is after his temptation in the wilderness. So there is an enormous spiritual issue here about his own sense of vocation, his sense of self, and what he believes the future of his ministry is going to take. And he's filled with the Spirit of God. Luke is the great theologian of the Holy Spirit. And his gospel is about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus. And the book of Acts, volume 2, is about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church, the body of Christ. And we now have received this Spirit of God on Pentecost and become both the beneficiaries of the Spirit and the fiduciaries of the Spirit. We have stewardship and custody over the Spirit of God. And we understand that personally as God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So the Holy Spirit is, here's the thing, we've talked a little bit recently about glossolalia, speaking in tongues. Let's all say glossolalia. glossolalia. It's a great word, isn't it? If you can get that lalia part, I don't know. But speaking in tongues as the affirmation of the presence of the Spirit. Uh, Anglican Christians are great believers in the power of the Spirit of God, but they prefer to speak and think about the presence of the Spirit as pervasive in the human person and not invasive. Do you understand the difference? Because a lot of people wish that the Holy Spirit would come to them and be disturbing and knock them off their pins. You know, I've had... In my ministry, I bet I've had a half a dozen people who have said, oh, I just, I wish I would have one of those uh, experiences of the Holy Spirit where I'm just absolutely knocked for six, you know. Because, you know, I think as we get to be adults, it may have something to do with uh, missing being throttled like we were when little children. You know, it comes from boredom. So if we could go to a throttling center... And get that all fixed. We might be in in better shape about seeking that kind of that kind of stuff. You know, I grew up in the animal business, and uh, uh, my grandfather owned the oldest pet shop in the United States. And he we used to have a, it where your dog is home, left home, bored. Dog's bored. So the dog lies in his bed, or he's on a thing, and he's gone. So he starts to lick his paw, right? And before you know it, he's licking his paw, and after doing this for a while, it becomes red. And then it starts to itch. And then he has to lick it because it's itching, and it's annoying. You know, boredom can cause people to do all kinds of things, can't it? Right? I somehow think piercing has something to do with it. <laughs> You're just bored, and you want some sort of an experience. Oh! Like, you know, I don't know. You know, it, it must be just rank boredom to actually think that self-mutilation is a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, be that as it may. Jesus comes into the synagogue. We read, I don't say anything about Nehemiah today. Nehemiah is uh, an example and probably used uh, by Jews to, to determine what they did in the synagogue. Tells you something about how it was done. You know, they got up, they read from the Torah, or they read from the Hebrew Bible, and then somebody uh, 
uh, expatiated on or gave a, a, preached a little homily about all of it. It was read, and they got the sense explained to them. We don't know exactly today whether Jesus picked that text or whether it was part of a lectionary that they were going to read, but it's brought to him, and he reads from the book of the prophet Isaiah. One of the little things to remember about this particular gospel is it's a demonstration also that Jesus knew how to read Hebrew because he reads it, right? <laughs> so he knew how to read Hebrew. And he reads this great text from Isaiah about the poor uh, being set, the, uh, the captives being set free, the poor receiving relief, the blind seeing, and so on. Now, we need to interpret this text a couple of ways. The principal and preferred interpretation, or at least the strongest one in terms of what Luke and what Jesus meant here, was that the kind of transformation that he is speaking of that occurs with the Spirit of God in the world is going to be a concrete physical reality. And that the Christian community, the body of Christ, is to be part of that kind of transformation in the world, not somewhere else. So this isn't just a spiritual statement about how things are going to be. This is a spirit, a statement about concrete changing about shifting the society in a direction where it is easier for people to be good, where there is greater justice and equity, and where each of us learn to become less anxious about the idea that if one person gets something, it takes everything away from you. Remember, Jesus lived in a, in, in a society that believed in zero-sum thinking. You know, there was just so much to go around. So if you get it, I don't have it. Or if you have too much, I'm not going to have enough. Or vice versa. Or if I'm generous, then I lose. So he is speaking now about a new order of things. And that that is going to happen in the world. So as Christian disciples, as faithful people, we need to seek and find the means to do this. Now, a lot of people get worried and nervous about this. There's some Christians that mean that preachers and other Episcopalians are going to get into politics or whatever that might mean. The fact is, you and I as reasonable people can disagree about matters of social policy. But it does mean that you and I need to labor with regard to creating a more just society. And that means that we're not going to give a lot of house room to people who think that the status quo is always the way that it's got to go particularly with regard to the way we use and allocate resources in this country. So what this text is about is that kind of approach to things. It also means that the Spirit of God is the animating force that produces the transformation uh, of people's hearts. And in Jesus' ministry, he, in Luke's gospel particularly, is going to ring this bell over and over again about its necessity and about the importance of bringing that kind of um, equity to the way in which you and I treat one another. So I guess the lesson this week would be, first of all, to give thanks for being part of the body of Christ. Remember last week and before I've said, when you think about being a Christian disciple or being part of the body of Christ, 
or being somehow engaged in the processes that Jesus speaks of here in Luke's gospel, it doesn't always mean that you're going to be engaged in some heroic work. It means that you're going to labor to be the best human being you can be and align and associate yourself with causes big and small that make create a society where it is easier for people to be good. And you can do that in your family. You can do that in your friendships. You can do that in the workplace. You can do it with any institutions or organizations that you're part of uh, that are worthy. So that's important to understand meaning the of the body of Christ. Take seriously its uh, importance. And remember that you become, according to Luke's gospel, an instrument of the Spirit of God in the world. And give thanks for that opportunity. Amen.